This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the dual delight today in speaking with um, the director uh, of the Center for South Asia, uh, Dr. Anthony Cerulli, and the associate director for the Center of South Asia, uh, Dr. Sarah Beckham. And the, the center is in a place called Madison, Wisconsin. Um, welcome both to the podcast. Thanks, Raj. So what is the Center for South Asia and um, how did it arise in Madison, Wisconsin? Well, uh, I'll just, I'll start off. The Center for South Asia is a one of our many area study centers at U- University of Wisconsin-Madison. And um, we've got a bit of a history going back uh, several decades, actually, um, and we can get into some of that history if you're interested. But we do a bunch of different things in the center, um, including a weekly lecture series uh, ranging from, you know, topics that are in the humanities, the social sciences, to public policy, and so on and so forth, uh, to uh, K through 12 pedagogical uh, training and outreach and providing information and materials about South Asia to teachers throughout Wisconsin, to funding graduate students' field work or archival research uh, in South Asia or, or elsewhere if need be, and some faculty as well, amongst other things. And Sarah could fill in some of those gaps uh, is probably better than I can actually. So I'll just stop and let her jump in. Thanks, Anthony. A couple of the other major initiatives that we administer here Uh, are two Title VI consortium-funded initiatives. So we um, administer the South Asia Book Award, which is a young adult um, book award competition. And we do a lot of programming uh, surrounding the finalist selections with K-12 educators. And we also administer the South Asia Summer Language Institute. So we are a Title VI FLAS-funded institution and we fund graduate students and undergraduates to study 
South Asian languages and among them the less commonly taught South Asian languages that some of those are some of the languages on offer here in the summer the only places that those languages are offered stateside in the summer and then of course the annual conference on South Asia is one of the other major activities that we administer and host here in Madison. Yeah well we'll talk uh in more depth about the conference in a moment. I had my first uh, conference experience in 2015. Uh, I think I was just finishing my PhD and it was uh, probably the most uh, cordial um, sort of connected environment I had experienced uh, um, presenting at a conference. We'll definitely dive into that. Uh, being a lover and scholar of Puranas, I would love the backstory <laughs> of how his center arose uh, at Madison. Sarah, do you want to take take that? I'll just add, um, Raj, that my very first academic paper was at the center for or at the annual conference uh, on South Asia as well, many years before yours. Sure, I can I can cover the a uh, little bit of the history of South Asia at UW Madison. So really began in the mid 1880s when uh, the first professor of Sanskrit was hired in the Department of Ancient Languages, and that was William Hull Williams. And then around the turn of the century, Indian classics started being taught in translation in the Department of Complet here at UW-Madison. And then in 1958 is when the Department of Indian Studies was established. And that came about because a couple of faculty members here at UW-Madison were participating in these federally funded programs to exchange expertise on technical um, in technical programs in India. And in response to the USSR's launch of the space satellite, 1957, the U.S. National Defense Education, or NDEA Act, legislated support for various area studies programs in U.S., universities. And so the um, that at that time, the Department of Indian Studies in 1960 was awarded an NDA um, grant to enhance language and area studies here at UW. And then that provided some seed funding for another uh, major award from the Ford Foundation in 1962 to enhance Indian studies over the next five years. And so through that grant, um, South Asian studies really rapidly picked up through various hires well through the 1970s at UW-Madison. And at that time, the center, which was funded by the NDEA was initially administrated, or sorry, administered (laughs) under, the department, and then they separated in 1990. It became an independent unit. Uh, Many things happened in that period of time. The UW and India program and Nepal were established. And then over time, then uh, the Center for South Asia migrated over into uh, the International Institute, which then became the International Division. And so since 2016, we have been under the uh, Institute for Regional and International Studies in the International Division. And we have hosted the annual conference on South Asia, which had a different name at the time since 1971. And it's pretty inextricably linked to the goals of the Um, federally funded programs, which were run through uh, what was then, I believe, called the 
South Asia Language and Area Center. So it's changed names since then. I believe it since 1990, it took a different name. That's the basic history. So it appears that your backstory indeed rivals uh, those uh, those of Quranic order in complexity <laughs> and, um, and and multifacetedness, if that's a word. Um, so let's talk about this conference. I I so loved uh, attending. I I been to different conferences. I had been to the AR, but it was a very different feel at that conference. And I could maybe say a bit more about that, but um, maybe tell us a bit about um, the genesis of the conference. Well, the conference, so the one you were you were at just last fall, Raj, was the 50th anniversary. So it was a big one. And it was our first one back in person since COVID too, which added an a, a additional sort of element to everybody's experience that I think, um, you know, was refreshing, obviously, to see people in person again. And uh, we got some really nice feedback in the uh after the conference, we send out uh, you know, requests for feedback. And we got some really nice comments about that event last fall. And you'll note that we it started in 71, but last year was the 50th because we had to cancel 2020. So um, it would have been our, our 51st last year, but we had canceled one. So why, why what happened 2020? Never mind. Don't, yeah. don't dignify the, the response. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's crazy how that's such a given. Now we all just sort of understand. Um globally, very few things like that. But the the conference itself is, I, I also find personally, and I mentioned my first academic paper was at the Madison conference, and uh, I found it to be a supportive environment. I found it to be interesting, supportive by people from across the spectrum, at all different stages of their careers were presenting, not just, um, you know, senior seasoned senior scholars or you know, mid-career scholars, but graduate students like myself. And that seems to be the case still today. And it's been like that from what I understand for quite pretty much most of its existence. And it started, as, as Sarah said, 1971. Um, and it was started by a retired professor here from, from UW-Madison who taught in religious studies, I believe. Is it Robert, uh, is it Frankenberg, I think, Sarah, is that correct? Frankenberg. Frickenberg, he was the one who um, who initiated the conference, and he has he had a, a little design for it when he started it, and he said that it was to bring together specialists of South, and at that time also Southeast Asia from different campuses across the University of Wisconsin system, got all these different um, you know branches, satellite campuses throughout the state, um, that would plan programs that would reach all different segments of the population throughout with state of Wisconsin, including teachers, say, in K through 12 schools, but also people, you know, who maybe are only on the periphery of academia or just interested in South Asia generally. And that's been something we've tried to, you know, continue to do, at least while I've been involved in the center here at UW-Madison and, and people before me have always continued to do that. This is an academic conference, but it's also open to the public. It's also meant to um, you know, be an engaging space to to learn not just about scholarship, but about cultural events and cultural aspects of that region, that part of the world as well. And it's, that's kind of still very much at the forefront of the programming. Yeah, though I, I was it was 2015 was the first time I ever uh, attended um, Madison, and I you know is I was told uh, I was it was. Um, indicated that it would be a lovely space to present at 
And so um, I went, I had a great time. I think it was about a month before I defended. And then I had this journey of um, uh, dealing with the academic job market. And then um, the climate in America changed a little bit <laughs> a couple months after that. And so I had okay. this this journey where I was sort of, you know, um, remaining productive and, 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 and waiting things out and applying here and there. And then before I knew it, I was like, wow, you know what, I'm able to produce independently and teach, you know, online. And, and so it was interesting. It's actually my experience of Madison, um, our bookends to this journey of starting off when I was just finishing the PhD in 2015. And then lo and behold, <laughs> being asked to come out in 2022, seven years later, um, to present, um, not on research, although I happily would at some point, I think will certainly in the near future, but to present on that journey of, um, of uh, independent scholarship, of this sort of innovative space I find myself in. Um, so, and, you know, probably a bit more festive and, um, and welcome given the, the hiatus due to COVID, but nevertheless, you could, it's palpable, right? Like I'm sort of able to discern an, an energy of vibe in most spaces. And it's, there, there's a real deep sense of bandhu there. It's just, it's just in the air. And I'm not sure if that's just history or that's just this, the, um, the, the intimacy of the subfields relating or just the, you know, the people who come and see each other, but it, it's really, you really get a sense of bandhu when you attend. Um, number of things I want to ask you about the conference, but one that I'll touch on is why did you invite folks out to talk about the sort of Altac or, or enterprise? You know, where did that come from? Maybe we'll start there. It was great to have you there in the fall speaking about your journey, Raj. And um, uh, I'll just say that and let Sarah maybe answer this question since I spoke most recently, but it's reflective of changes right in in our field in academia generally and uh it's something that's it's becoming more and more important for us yeah and and to add to that um you know the conference has grown significantly over the past 50 years and for example there were 350 participants in 1981 in in uh 2003 there were 500 participants and then in 2019, they were, there were over 1,100 participants and over a quarter of those participants were international scholars. And so the, the, the stakeholders who attend the conference are uh, really a range of attendees. So it's not just scholars, but graduate students, many of whom are not necessarily in programs that have um, you know, a strong South Asia studies program or department. And so we're really trying to extend inclusion, uh, it, not just in terms of who attends, but also the type of programming that is offered. So we are trying to develop programming for, um, you know, professional development programming, like an Alt-Act panel, as well as different um, roundtables and panels, which address the pedagogical needs at institutions like MSIs, community colleges. So we're really trying to extend the programming so that um, the, the programming isn't just sort of focused on, um, you know, South Asia, um, South Asian studies as kind of narrowly defined in the past. Yeah, it's, it really is fascinating. Um, 
just noticing the changes in interacting with folks. I had, I had um, a religious study scholar, uh, Russell McCutcheon on uh, not too, too long ago. And I was, I actually referenced uh, my Madison experience, I believe in that podcast, uh, or at least it came to mind certainly because he's quite interested these days in, um, uh, in, in his perspective, it is, um, it is the responsibility or uh, should be an aspiration of religious studies departments to prepare <laughs> their graduates for um, careers beyond, uh, you know, beyond the academy. And I, I, I just find it fascinating that he's really invested in this vision and, 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 and I'm sure um, there are a number of folks in the field who are taking note of these changes and, and responding to them um, as as is the the conference, but to me that that thread that thread of you know let's let's think about uh, let's cater to the needs of those who may have other careers or may be needing other careers. That's just one thread of what I really sense to be a community feel that uh, this conference where we want to cater to whomever is showing up, right? And the more the merrier, whether they're. Um, members of the interested public, whether they're, they're you know, um, specialists. Could you say a bit about the sorts of maybe themes, topics, subfields that are featured at the conference? Sure. The one thing that, that happens every conference is, is that a chair is um, selected and it's somebody from the UW-Madison faculty. And that chair gets to design or name a theme for each conference. And um, I think since I've been at UW-Madison and involved in the, the organization and um, sort of rolling out the, the three or four days of the conference from that, the back end, I think there was one year where there was declared to be no theme, but every other year there's been a theme. Uh, the year I was chair, uh, the theme was artistry. And the theme doesn't have to, you know, uh, impact all the panels and all the papers, but it does provide uh, a kind of guide for some of them, for many of them, in fact. And the themes are often broad enough that, you know, capacious enough that they can actually um, be addressed through, say, literature, a panel on literature, a panel on fine art, in the case of artistry, a panel on politics or diplomacy as well, uh, all, you know, could sort of be pitched and submitted and proposed uh, according to the theme, but we take submissions from anything, from any field, um, irrespective of the, of the theme. But the theme does have some kind of, um, you know, help in directing the overall presence that year. It, it also through the keynote speakers and the plenaries and then the cultural events, whichever those are. Often it's music. Um, the year I chaired, we had a, a stand-up comedian come and present, and we had a, a short play uh, as well performed. So that's one way in which you you get this kind of specific feeling, maybe um, year to year. Uh, and we really, you know, I think historically, maybe there were more humanities and social science uh, type panels, but. Um, that's probably still the case. Lots of, you know, uh, religious studies coming back to that field. There's plenty of that here. And some of the people who present and uh, on the panels or have a symposium, what we used to call the pre-conference, 
have been doing this for decades, right? They meet as a group or a kind of an evolving, changing group. They've been doing this for decades. And uh, that also adds to the feeling, I think, of camaraderie and closeness that maybe you experience either directly or indirectly when you're at the conferences is that a lot of people have been meeting together and it's pretty obvious that they're seeing each other at a kind of standing reunion every October when they come to Madison. And that that adds to that as well. Yeah, fascinating. Um, tell me about this thing, this symposium, this this one's called pre-conference thing. What's that all about? All right. So um, it the symposia, which the symposium day, which used to be the the pre-conference day, is really the day prior to the start of the conference. Um, different symposia or are organized, and as Anthony mentioned. Um, a number of those are sort of standing year after year. One that I can think of in particular, it has been the AIS book to workshop, or sorry, uh, dissertation to book workshop um, that you know selects a small number of participants to sort of workshop the uh, their dissertations into what will hopefully become a book. And Anthony, can you think of some of the others which? I know you've been yeah. in. Yeah, one that I've been involved in uh, over the years is the Science, Technology, and Medicine Symposium that uh, has met in different ways. This past October, half of the people who participated were virtual. So we were all, there were about, I don't know, 20 of us maybe in this room. And it was a um, it was a half-day symposium. You can either have a half-day or a whole full day, which changes the nature of the engagement with people when you can spend that much uh, time together compared to a panel, for example. So that that's an important aspect to the symposia. But half of the group were, you know, around the around the globe. Many of them were in South Asia. So we all had our laptops on our on our on our laps and we were talking with each other in the room and talking to people around the globe at the same time. It was a pretty fascinating uh, experience for me. So I hadn't done that before, uh, but I you know, it was very nice and that it worked as well as it did. Uh, another one, there's a Bhakti uh, some, uh, symposium, I think that has been meeting for a number of years as well, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, there are a couple different spe- real specific literature, uh, poetry, literature um, symposium that come, if not every year, maybe every other or every three years, they seem to circle back. Yeah, Politics is, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go yeah. ahead, Sarah. Okay, yeah, and in addition to you know some of these um, sort of theme-based symposia, we also see on a semi-regular basis a number of the KORCs or the um, association meetings will also hold some type of conference. I know that AIPS has usually like a Young Scholars pre-conference. Um, I think Himali- uh, maybe Sri Lanka. So there are different kind of uh, regions within South Asia also that will hold a pre-conference on a semi, maybe not annually, but every other year or so. So this past conference, it was in person. Was there also an online element? Are they ever hybrid? And do you have any plans for any such thing in future? That's something we've been talking a lot about, and there's an obvious need for this moving forward. We we experience this at all the conferences that we attend, and uh, it seems like the major conferences that 
many of us who come to and participate in the, the South Asia conference, the other conferences that we attend, many of us like AAS and AAR have dealt with this in different ways. And uh, moving forward, um, we, we had our call for the next conference for the 2023 conference coming out. Um, we noted that we're going to have, I don't know exactly what the percentage will be, Sarah, maybe you can jump in on that. We're gonna have two rooms, I think, that are dedicated specifically for this hybrid option to make sure that we can you know, continue to have people participating uh, who can't come to, to Madison or maybe you know, just because of whatever, uh, but we're gonna have that available for people so that we can have at least a component of it being hybrid. And whether that needs to increase after next year is something that we'll revisit after we see how this year goes. Does that sound, is there something to that, Sarah, that, um, that I'm yeah. going Yeah, one of the lessons that we learned from our fully online 2021 conference was that it increased international participation. It increased participation from, um, you know, just it was, a, it was a very large number of people who were other who otherwise would have been unable to attend in person. And so while we did make um, allowances for rem remote participation last year, we also recognized that we needed to sort of refine, um, you know, how that the modality and, and how we were going to make that available. So as Anthony said, we're opening up two, potentially three rooms, about 20% for either all remote or um, hybrid per participation with some type of two-way communication device. And of course, what makes um, our conference, we are trying to learn from, you know, peer conferences to see what's working, what's not. I think it's still sort of in progress across the field, but, um, you know, we're a little bit different. What, what's, what differentiates us from other conferences is that we do not support the conference through membership dues. And so we are supporting the conference solely through registration fees. So we are trying to create different fee structures that would make uh, the conference more accessible to remote participants and participants um, who are, you know, internationally based. So we're, we're trying to, we will continue to um, take the feedback that we get annually into account and address accordingly. And we have linked the, um, um, we have linked information about uh, the conference and, and the upcoming conference and registration in the podcast notes. So be free to, to check that out. Are there um, upcoming dates in terms of submissions or, or, you know, the conference events that, that we should put on people's radars? Yes, we have the first deadline will be Wednesday, March 1st for symposium proposals. And uh, that I'm assuming is linked in the podcast notes. And then the single paper panels and roundtable proposals are going to be April, due April 5th. And I also, while we're on the topic of deadlines, I want to give a shout out to our conference coordinator, Dr. Andrea Fowler, who um, is also putting together uh, an integrated app that will bring together the remote, hybrid, and in-person proposals in a seamless way. So we really want to thank her for all of her hard work in organizing the conference. Yeah, Andrea does a lot of work that you know is behind the scenes, um, but for anybody uh, who has communicated about the conference through the website and uh, maybe even at the conference itself, often that's coming to Andrea and then is answered by Andrea and dealt with by Andrea. And uh, she's a 
absolutely indispensable for the the success of the of the conference. Great. I'm glad you gave a shout out to um someone who works so tireless tirelessly. Um my I'm just back from travels teaching adventures in Australia. So my brain doesn't know what time it is. <laughs> I failed to mention at the outset, this is actually a very special podcast in that this is um, uh, my personal 250th podcast. So it's a milestone. So we're celebrating a milestone together. Your 50th year so far, the 250th podcast. So good times. If only my brain can know what time zone it's supposed to be in, we'll be fine. Um, Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. That's a lot, and it's a it's a good it's a great service to to a lot of people actually. You know all the books and that you cover and the conversations that you have. So thank you. You're welcome. It's um, <laughs> started off as a favor, uh, then became a hobby, and now it's just sort of a lifestyle. It's just like any given time, there's someone emailing about a book, or there's a book arriving, or there's someone trying to deliver a book. Like it's just a, uh, it sort of just happens in the background of all of the the um, the primary production. But um, I love it. It's great. Um, I get to speak with people like you about amazing things like um, the annual conference, Madison. Is there anything else about the conference that you wanted to put on people's radars or the center? Um. I would say, you know, we're, we look forward as uh, when our, when these calls go out, like the the current one for the symposia, and then the panels coming about a month and a, a little bit more after after that. Uh, we love seeing the you know the interest in the creativity that goes into these proposals, and we look forward to another exciting uh, conference this fall. I think things went well last fall, and we're hopeful that we'll do that again this year. We like the increased diversity that we're seeing in ideas that are, are coming across the panels become, um, you know, every year there, there's there's new things, new ideas coming in and showing the the vibrancy of the field of South Asian studies. And it's that's always a delight to see. We're, we're tremendously grateful. I don't know if this is something that folks know, but the people that receive all the submissions, the, the selection panel is made up of not just folks at UW Madison. They're people who come from all over, you know, different universities uh, throughout the world serve on that committee and we're grateful to their help. I think it's a three-year term. Sarah, is that right? That they, they usually uh, help us out and, and cycle off and new folks come in. And, uh, and so, that you know is critical to the life uh, of the programming that we do, and their help. And uh, I you know I'm just that's a, it's just a shout out to folks to you know we hope you participate and and give us your feedback after after you do. Fantastic. Um, well, the links are in the podcast notes for those who may wish to um, um, submit a paper uh, or attend, whether remotely or in person. Um, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, Raj. For those of you listening, we, of course, have been speaking uh, with Dr. Anthony Cerulli and Dr. Sarah Beckham, um, a director and associate director, respectively, of the Center for South Asia, um, uh, based at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, keep well, keep listening, and um, hopefully I'll see you in Madison at some point. Take care.